Well, it's my privilege to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus this morning on this, the Lord's Day, and uh, glad to have each of you with us. Welcome to church, uh, and those meeting with us by way of live stream, glad to have you with us as well. And uh, if I could draw your attention, well, you don't need to look at it, but... uh, in our bulletin, I would make mention that uh, we have set a date for our next new members class. That'll be the 25th of this month in a few weeks, uh, three weeks from today. If you are at all interested in uh, becoming a member of Wake Chapel, this class is designed to give you the information you need to make an informed decision uh, prayerfully. But uh, we'd love to have you as part of that. There's a a part of your bulletin that you can tear away and put your name and email address and put it in one of our... uh, we got a plate over here and one at the back uh, on your way out of the building. Or you can use that QR code there to speed things up. But I would mention that. We had a great week this past week with... uh, Vacation Bible School Day Camp. We've got another one coming up next week, and we hope your week was good as well. But uh, let's go ahead and turn to Esther. And this is chapter 4 today. We're, we're moving our way through. We won't take the whole chapter today as we took a whole chapter last week. We'll save a few verses for the week to come. Um, But Esther chapter 4, and let me read this to us, we'll pray, and then we'll study this passage a verse at a time. Esther chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, The queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, 
All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for Sunday and for time together, not only with each other, but most importantly, at your feet as the great teacher. Lord, make us students, good students. Open our ears, open our eyes, open to us this passage. Help us to understand it. Lord, help us to obey it. We ask that you, you take this time that we've all set aside, and we thank you for giving us what it takes to be consistent in that area. And Lord, make much of it, and make us more like you, and less like ourselves. We, we thank you, and we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I believe that uh, most behavioral scientists, if were asked the question, they'd probably agree that uh, the human species more or less looks at life quite up close. We we, we don't look but from such a distance forward. We we tend to live really in the here and now rather than tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. I think... You just about have to hit middle age before you start worrying about the clock or how much time uh, you've got or how fast things seem to go by. As kids, we don't worry about that at all. So it's not linear. It's, it's a thing of age. But it doesn't do us a lot of favors with certain things like history uh, or even uh, what we're doing right now with this book in your lap that is uh, millennia old. Uh, Today's Independence Day. I I think if you were to download or uh, spy in on the average American brain today, it'd probably be caught up more with what's for lunch or who's cooking out uh, than any consideration about our independence or what it costs to gain it or maintain it. And the same is true with this book. Uh, to, To... contextualize this passage reading about people with sackcloth and ashes mourning because some king has issued an edict that all of your kind are to be destroyed by a certain date that's tough for us to do it's tough for us to turn on the news and uh, hear of a bunch of people who've been killed by some madman or a mudslide or a hurricane or an explosion it's just hard to put ourselves into that because we hear it so often. And we live by the minute and the hour rather than planning. Okay, uh, given the situation I'm in now, how do I prepare for the, the future? We don't really worry about that that much. That's why most young people don't save a dime for retirement until many of their earning years are behind them. And then they think, oh, I should, should do this. What do we make of this today, and how does it fit? And the purpose for this as an introduction is to just try to gain a context. 
if, if you happen to be on your way somewhere after the service and lunch, say down 40 headed toward the coast, there's two rest stops and each of them have a massive map behind glass with an arrow that says you are here. So out of a state with a hundred counties, you've got a nice convenient little arrow, you are here. That's called contextualizing. That's what we've got to do with this. Where are we? And something that took place 2,500 years ago. Um, this story is critical to all that follows. And we'll understand what Esther does and why she does that and what we can learn from it. But the point I want to make is this isn't the worst that Israel had ever seen. Though you could scrub your Bibles and you probably aren't going to find a place where a higher percentage of Jews are under the imminent threat of death. There's been times where the Jews were in trouble. You could rewind the clock to when, say, the southern tribes were invaded by Babylon and then carried off into uh, exile. That's the situation they find themselves in now, generations down the road. Many lost their lives. Many were carted off into slavery. It wasn't the worst. Uh, a little bit before that, Assyria, the northern tribes, same thing, invaded, carried off into slavery. Back it up even more than that. During the conquest or the invading armies under the period of the kings. Uh, th there was that fight with Nineveh. Uh, there was the battle of Ai. Much smaller. A lot of people died. Bad situation. Um, go back way further. Egypt. They're all under bondage. Uh, Pharaoh. A lot of them died in the sand. Making bricks. And then later without straw. So there are places in history where it was bad news to be a Jew in certain times. But still, I don't know if I've succeeded in helping any of us identify with these people and think, Oh no, the Jews have been in trouble and they're in big trouble now. I better listen to that because sitting in the pew in 2021 on July the 4th, I just don't know what difference this makes. Here's the point. This isn't the worst the Jew has ever seen. None of those other places were the worst they've ever seen. Nothing is as bad as what you read at the beginning in Genesis. When a rule was given and then it was broken, but before it was broken there was a promise. The day that you eat the fruit thereof, you will surely die. So to contextualize where we're sitting right here and now, really we're no different than the Jews under imminent threat of death. We're under imminent threat of death right now and have been since humanity fell into sin. And the only thing that's going to help any human survive the promised extermination from God because of their sins is for somebody else to get involved because none of us can do anything about it. And that's where we might fit with the book of Esther. We just read of Haman's plot, kill them all, and then certain people find out and they're putting on sackcloth. Esther learns a little late, but unless she goes to talk to the king and she's got the best chance to do it, nothing's going to change. 
because no one has access to the king. So with that in mind, and this won't take as long as some weeks, and we're going to observe communion here at the end. Let's look at this a step at a time. What happens in chapter 4 is critical to all that follows the rest of the book of Esther. You can say that from the beginning, but the storyteller here seems to want us to focus on how everything flows out of the decision Esther is soon to make. Most of the drama in what we just read and the next few verses we'll look at next week is kind of unique because it involves two people who spent most of their lives together, but after a certain date where Esther is taken into the harem, she and Mordecai have not seen each other, though they've had communication, but only with a mediator. Someone who's got to go into the harem to tell Esther what she needs to know, and someone comes back out to tell Mordecai what he needs to know. And the same is true here. It's just a much more dramatic conversation, but uh, this would take a long time to unfold, though we read over it in just a couple of minutes, because it's got to take the time for this guy to go all the way in and come all the way out, and several times. What's interesting about it, though there's, there's two locations, a conversation between people that aren't looking at each other, but using a, a, a back-and-forth, uh, to-and-fro messenger who shuttles these messages, the locations are very different. Now, geographically, I don't know how many hundred yards separates where Esther's inside the compound and where Mordecai's outside the gate. But you've got a man outside a gate wearing sackcloth and ashes, screaming to the top of his lungs and wailing in public demonstration in protest of this mass murder on the calendar. And then you've got this girl inside the harem that takes the definition of comfort, insulation, safety, security. She's got nothing to worry about. He has everything to worry about. She's inside the bubble, as it were. He's outside the gate. And I think it probably would be most helpful, since that seems to be uh, the dramatic portion of the text, is organize around those differences. So I have four points. Here's the first. Let's look at the deep grief of the people of God. And that's on the outside. We'll look at that in contrast to what's going on inside in a moment. You look at verse 1 there, chapter 4. Mordecai learned of all that had been done, tore his clothes, sackcloth and ashes. Uh, He went to the middle of the city, cried out with a loud, bitter cry outside the king's gate. And then we have this indication that you can't go inside the king's gate in sackcloth. So that seems to be perfectly uh, in keeping with all the other rules inside that building. No bad news. Um, So I I doubt they've read newspapers. Usually that's got bad news in it. Um, And nobody can be in the king's presence with a sad face. Uh, It's almost... uh, you know, I'm thinking of that goofy Lego movie the kids watch where everything is awesome <laughs> inside you know, the compound. But it's not on the outside. And it's kept that way on purpose. Uh, the last thing we heard in chapter 3 was that Haman, you know, he's the, the villain who talks the king into making this law to kill all the Jews. They are sitting down, him and the king, for a drink 
while the city hears the news and goes into confusion. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 gives us Mordecai's reaction. The description's emphatic, tearing one's clothes in n- numerous other places in Scripture is a, a understood, recognized sign of demonstrating grief. Same with throwing ashes over oneself. And it's not that he just looked like a mess. Uh, he's loudly and bitterly uh, crying in a public strategic place for maximizing his demonstration. And that was as far as he could go, again, because no bad news crosses the gate. Verse 3, every province where the king commanded his decree, uh, all the Jews are mourning. This isn't just what Mordecai is doing. And uh, many of them also lay in sackcloth and ashes. So let's contrast that with the inside of the palace. That was the deep grief of the children of Israel or God's people. This is the shallow grief of the palace. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, told her what? Told her what Mordecai was doing. The queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so they might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So we know there was communication when in chapter 2 Mordecai would go outside the king's harem and inquire to see what was going on and he could speak that way. But in this case, um, it doesn't surprise us that the news of what Mordecai was doing would get back to Esther. That's what's taking place. Um, The text says that she was deeply distressed. But I think if we read on, it's safe to say it's not the same deep distress as is said about Mordecai. Um, Again, we're comparing the deep grief of God's people with shallow grief of the palace. I think you could sum it up like this. You be the judge. Mordecai is broken because the people of God are under judgment. Esther is sad, but because Mordecai is upset. And that seems to be the case because she's most worried about fixing the, the, the scene outside the gate. Here, go take him some clothes and get rid of that sackcloth. Um, from this point on, though, uh, having responded, and, and it's basically with the language of the empire, right? We studied this earlier. They're big on visuals, big parties, lots of gold, any, and everything you want to drink. So, Esther, go cover the problem. And that shouldn't surprise us. The empire of the world works like that now. I mean, with enough wardrobe and makeup, you can pretty much cover over just about everything that goes on inside. And it seems that some of the most wealthy and most famous are the most depressed. So she's trying to fix it, but not the correct way. And from this point, it seems she realizes there must be something missing because it doesn't work. Um, Look at verse 5. Listen to the specifics here. To learn what this was and why it was. So I think that's her admission. There's a lot going on I don't know about. So she's making an inquiry. There's big change in tone and specificity as far as the author's going here. Verse 6, Hathak went out to Mordecai. And he's got a name now. All the other 
gophers uh, were unnamed. This one's named Hathak, and it's one of the king's eunuchs. Went out to Mordecai in the open square. Mordecai told him all that happened to him. So he tells him everything. Um, gives a copy of the written decree. And then some instructions, specific instruction as to what he thinks Esther should do. So uh, here's point number three. The need for a mediator. And that's the last part with his instructions for Esther. She is going to be the mediator. But let's, let's look at how Mordecai goes about this to start with. He does two things in his sit down with Hathak, who's come to find out what's going on. First, he sends back careful and detailed information regarding all that had taken place. He tells her everything, even sends a copy of the official ruling. Purpose of that is to make sure that she knows what he knows. It's really hard to know how to act when you don't know what you don't know. We spend most of our time in these Sunday gatherings trying to understand this book before we take the next step and try to obey this book. So, this makes sense the way our lives work. Do you go to school before you start your career or the other way around? No, you train first, then you're expert later. So, he's telling her what she needs to know. And once that's taken place, second, and this has to be difficult for him to say and for her to hear, The instruction involves two parts. One, go to the king's presence, into his presence. And two, plead with him and beg for mercy on behalf of the people. Now, if you look at this, let me see, verse 8. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. Command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Oops. Cat's out of the bag. I think purposefully. But we've been taking careful notice of how the secret's been kept. And who told her to keep the secret? Mordecai told her to keep the secret. But now at least one person, Hathak, inside the king's business knows that this is her people. So he is now reversing his previous instruction to keep quiet about her background and instead openly identify with the covenant people of God precisely when these people are under an empire-wide edict to their destruction. So you keep it quiet while everything's safe. Now that we're all going to die... You tell them you're one of us too. This has to be hard for him to say. And it has to be hard for Esther to hear. And if if this were put into some motion picture for uh, hear this. And to watch her face as she hears what she's asked to do. uh, Which is a massive change order from what he told her all her life. And then through the stage when she was taken. It's been a few years now that she's been the queen. So what happens next? Look at verse 9. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai said. And this is where I'm disappointed in the story. Verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai. 
I want to know what happened between verse 9 and 10. That seems to be the dramatic part. Did she just sit in silence? Did she stand up? Did she throw anything? How long did she sit and think? I don't know. Obviously, to the storyteller, not important. Doesn't mean the inquiring mind doesn't want to know, but the inspired record doesn't tell. Verse 11, And the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, well, this is what she's telling uh, Hathak to tell Mordecai. All the king's servants, all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one who the king holds out his golden scepter. That's what I remember from Sunday school, the gold scepter. You've got to wait and see if, if he stretches it out as to whether or not you survive or off with their head. Um, and history tells us there were men always around Xerxes with axes to the left and the right to make sure that if anybody got too close, they could take care of the problem quickly and uh, efficiently. But you look at this. I think it might be safe to say, and I don't like restating people's words into other words, but this almost might kind of be like her saying, you got to be joking. Let me think of it. He tells her to do what everybody knows may be certain death. And then she tells Hathak to go tell him what he already knows. So maybe that's why we don't need much information between 9 and 10. Maybe that was her first response. You go remind him what we already know. Go state the absolute obvious. Everybody in the kingdom knows this. There's certain things that everybody knows, right? You can't break in line. Everybody knows you can't waste food. Though we break line and we waste food. But everybody in this kingdom knew that if you go to the king and he doesn't like it, you don't survive. So they're stating the obvious. Esther may have thought this to be exactly the opposite of what would be the safest thing for her to do. I mean, you think of it this way. Not to get ahead of ourselves into next week's messages. Um, but if all the Jews are in danger and everybody that is known to be a Jew is going to be killed, then maybe the best thing to do is to make sure you always keep it a secret that you're a Jew. And that's what she's told not to do. There's also another part in here at the end. Let's see, it would be verse 11. The last line. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now this is something that I don't think many people would know. I don't know that they published a calendar of who the king is with on a specific night. Though everybody knows that this is the queen, but everybody knows that this man likes his contests and he's got a massive harem. So she's telling information that might be known only to a few, but it's critical information. Listen, he hadn't called me in a month. 
This is the girl who had gained the attention of the king's eye. She had what he wanted. But it's now obvious that she has lost that attention. At least for a month. So it's not like she's going to get called without having to go. She's going to have to go in there uninvited. If she's going to go in there at all. Now again, not to get ahead of ourselves for next week. But let's start to wrap this up or put it into a position where we can think our way through what this means. As far as our obedience. On one level. Everything in this book. So far can be attributed to some demonstrable cause. Now the reason why Esther is queen is because she had what the king wanted. And because he'd thrown out Vashti. Um. The reason why all the Jews are facing imminent death is because Haman wouldn't bow down. Uh, we can look through all these things and, and it, if, if, if we're deconstructing it, we can see that uh, there were causes and effects, it seems. But in the last chapter and in this chapter, we're seeing a marked difference in the way the author is explaining the story such that questions are being brought against the theory that everything just happens and no one is in real control. That it's just coincidence, happenstance, cookie way the cookie crumbles, blah, blah, blah. So on one level, you might look and say, well, this is quite a tale. But then there's another level of causality represented here. And this is what we'll look at a lot more in depth next week. And there's already two cases of this going on. And Esther doesn't include, isn't included on this list. First was Haman, actually. Haman was doing what in order to figure out the best way to get rid of all these Jews? Asking smart people so that he could... Uh, you know, with the most information, make the best decision? No. What was he doing? It's actually what the holiday in Israel to this day, because of this book, Purim, he was casting pur, which were lots. Superstitious. You want to know when to kill all the Jews? Well, let's throw these rocks in a bag for a year and figure it out. So what Haman is telling us, even though he's a pagan, is he doesn't buy the fact that it all just happens out. He thinks there's a way to actually change things. That there's more than just random chance. Even though he's going about it in a goofy way. Now God spoke through lots until we get to Acts. Holy Spirit's given and we don't see lots used anymore. But let's keep going. That's Haman. On the other side, we've got Mordecai here. And he thought to the tune of uh, more descendants than the sands on the seashore. So the history of the world does not include a mass extinction wipeout of the Jews. And then he's later going to say, hey, if it's not you for such a time as this, deliverance will come some other way. But this is not how the story of the Jews end. I'm thinking you've got a pretty good spot. 
to be instrumental in the way the story changes course. It looks bad. It's going to look better. But he's looking again at there's more than just coincidence. So neither Haman nor Mordecai believed that natural explanations were enough to make sense of things or sense of the world. There is a purposefulness behind their choices, which is seen in Haman's use of lots and Mordecai's a God-fears speculation on the providence of his cousin's rise to the position of queen as useful to his creator and redeemer should he choose to use her. That's what will be great next week. The first part of what he says to Esther. Who knows that you're not sent here for such a time as this. He's saying, I don't know. You don't know. King doesn't know. No one knows except God knows. And he isn't telling. That's how this works. But he refuses to believe that they're all just the random chance of the evolution process and spinning of the globe and matter in motion I think it's marvelous to see you've got both of them Haman and Mordecai neither one of them think this is all there is one of them is right and the other is blind so here's the conclusion and I hope that uh, the time spent in Considering our propensity to look at things here and now rather than into the future, it's tough for us to identify with places in history and so on and so forth. We're all under a sentence of death. These people are, and we are. It's just theirs involve Persian military and swords and bloodshed. Ours probably involves getting older, wearing out. And dying naturally. It might not. Uh, Wind the clock back a year. Some of us were very concerned about a virus which may have uh, interrupted our plans. There's been different times, different generations that were sent off to war. Some came back, some didn't. That's hard for us to relate to now. I, I, I try to make sure when certain things are on television, I'll tell the kids, hey, this happened. It's not just some movie. This is our, our history. But sometimes in life, it seems to slow down and we start to think about things. So sitting under a tent out here, cemetery saying goodbye, or after a diagnosis, or after saying goodbye to a parent, or the disintegration of a relationship can put the brakes on this fast-paced life that we know of. The truth is, at every moment, our life couldn't be more seriously in jeopardy on a spiritual level. After the Garden of Eden, and you will surely die because of your sins, uh, we're not talking about heartbeats and uh, calendars we're talking about eternity and all of us are doomed unless of course someone can get to the seat of supreme authority and talk him into saving us then we have no hope if there's such a thing as a mediator and this would be between God and man. 
and Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy, the man, Christ Jesus, is such a mediator. Then we have hope. But apart from that, there's no hope. Every last one of us are sitting outside of a gate, locked away. In Eden, it was a flaming sword. Stay away. You ate the tree, you're out. Can't have anything to do with me. I'm still holy and you're sinful. So we got this mediator who left the throne room of heaven, took on human flesh to sit certain places like, I don't know, with a, at a well with a woman and tell her things that came from heaven so that she can be saved and others were too. We haven't seen each other since the garden, though there's been lines of communication, but through a mediator. And based on that information, we have the prospect of someone actually going before the king of kings. Who will the king of kings hold out his scepter to? Any of us? No. His own son? Absolutely. This matches up more than we might think it does on the surface. But we all are in this situation. Sitting outside a gate. Waiting as the mediator goes back and forth. What we need is one with access to the place of ultimate power. Who will enter that place of power and plead for us. If we have that we have hope. And without that there is no hope. It's 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. And this is why I thought it's communion Sunday. We'll stop here at verse 12. Because verse 12 goes and they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And that's when he gets into hey. I don't think your chances of survival are very good. And you might look at this as, okay, I'm terminal, but the doctor's got some options. So let's go hear what options we've got. And see which works out. That kind of sounds like the way Esther's responding. Mordecai is more like this. No, it'll all be okay in time. God's got something up his sleeve. Who knows? But you might be for such a time as this. That's all next week. Today, on this side of the cross, 2021, on July the 4th, the mediation's already taken place. Uh, Jesus came, spread his arms on a cross, said, It's finished. The king was satisfied. And he now sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father, interceding for us at this moment. And one of the things that he told us to do in the interim, while he's there and we're here, while he's building you know, the, those mansions as they're described in King James, and waiting to bring us to where he is, he gave us communion. So we don't forget. It's one of the problems in Esther. There's a the, the, the fasting in the morning and the prayer that's unsaid almost looks a little too late. We're to never forget these things. And communion is something that Jesus gave us that involves our sight, 
our taste, our smell, our touch. It involves all the senses. We do this quarterly. And uh, I hope you got yours on your way in. And maybe the next time we do this, we'll do it, should I say, the old-fashioned way, where we pass plates and so forth. And uh, if you were here with us on Easter, you know how these work. Um, We'll do the bottom first. That's where the bread is, on the bottom side. And uh, the blood of the vine, as it's called, the grape juice is on the top. But let me read to us some things from uh, what Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians 11. And then we're going to have a little time of prayer to prepare for this. And I usually say... Um, to those who may be visiting, we're glad to have you. And uh, as far as this church views communion, we look at it as uh, close communion. Some churches, only their membership are in on this. Um, that would be closed communion. But if you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you know what we've been talking about here. He is your mediator, paid for your sins. You now have access to God because of that. Then we would wholeheartedly invite you to do this with us. If not, this is something that needs more explanation. We usually tell folks, hey, if if it's not understood, then uh, it's not anywhere near as meaningful. So maybe the best thing to do is to let it pass. That would go for children. And parents know best the hearts of their children, even though they can't see them with their eyes, but they know them by their, their doings. Um, so let me read to you. This uh, is what Paul was telling the, the Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is done for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is Paul downstream telling these folks in Corinth what happened the night of Christ's betrayal. We call this communion. And the juice represents Jesus' blood and the bread represents His body. But before we do this, as we've done so many times before, let's just take a few minutes right where you are. And David will play and we can pray. Ask the Lord to help us remember Him the way He chose for us to do this. And that we wouldn't do this unworthily, as the scriptures say, with unconfessed sin in our hearts, sin which made his death on the cross necessary. So as the piano plays, let's all take a few minutes and go to the Lord in prayer. I'll read for you again the 23rd verse of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord which... I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this little piece of bread. It didn't look like much. It doesn't taste like much. But what it represents means everything. We thank you for this. We've read in your word today a, a story from the book of Esther. And grief among your people over the situation they find themselves in. Lord, would you give us grief over our sins? And Lord, as we see the story unfold and the need of a mediator, as it's understood, somebody to go to the king. Lord, here and now, would you bring to our mind the, the cost of a mediator what it cost to do what you did giving your body and your blood we do this in remembrance of you amen and then in verse 25 in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me again let's pray Father in heaven, we thank you for your blood and all the things that we know. Scripture is in our, our singing, the power of the blood of Jesus to wash away our sins. We thank you for what you did. We remember in your name. Amen. And in verse 26, for as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we've just done this, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's past and future. We proclaim what he did and the present, looking forward to the future when he comes. And folks, uh, it's always a privilege. But it, it, a church feels like a church when its families together doing what the Lord commanded them to do. And uh, this is one of the ordinances. For too long, we're going to have baptism ordinance. And we're going to observe the Lord's commands as believers are baptized. But uh, we've got a song to sing before we're dismissed. And um, thank you again. This is where I'll sign off. Have a, a good uh, remainder of your holiday weekend, whether that means you've got tomorrow off or you go to work, um, it was good to be in the house of the Lord. And uh,